I am excited this morning. I understand you guys have been walking through the Bible, and, which is amazing. That's great. And this morning, we want to dive in particularly into how do we understand the violence and particularly holy war in the Old Testament, right? Because holy war can be probably the most extreme form of violence. Where you kind of hit these passages, you're like, dude, what is going on? Is God a genocidal maniac? Like, what is happening in some of these parts, right? And I think for many of us, there can be this fear that holy war is kind of the skeleton in God's closet, right? This tough topic where if we were to open up the closet doors, if we were to really open up scripture and take a closer look at these passages, I think the fear is that we could find that God is not truly good or worthy of our trust. Yeah, I found, I think we often feel that way because we have a caricature of what's going on in the biblical story. And so one of the things I want to try and do this morning is try and offer a few paradigm shifts that can just sort of help us reclaim and reframe a healthier, more robust understanding uh, where we see these topics arising because of the goodness of God not in spite of it or in contradiction to it. At the end of the day, my biggest hope for this morning is not necessarily just to give you answers to questions, that are, it's that we could reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God, that he is good through and through, all the way down into his very bones, right? And so this is, uh, particularly, this is a personal topic for me, right? I, back in the day, I had the chance to work on the Navajo Reservation uh, for about six months on a land rights case. Uh, and this was a group of, uh, you know, just these phenomenal native leaders and this indigenous community of, of shepherds that were dealing with a land rights case with a, a big inter- international multi-billion dollar uh, mineral company. And while I was there, I got to learn a lot more about uh, Native history in general and and their particular history, and became just grieved at some of the injustice and tragedy that's taken place in our country's history. Uh, The broken treaties, the forced migrations, the massacres. Uh, U.S. Senator Daniel K. Inouye has remarked that of over 800 treaties that we made with Native peoples, we've broken every one. And like a black eye in this history, for me, was the idea of manifest destiny. This ideology in the 1800s that liked often to draw on kind of language and imagery from the Old Testament. And the sense that sort of Europeans coming over were sort of like this new Israel, right? And this here becomes like, this is the the promised land. And when you get that, then suddenly native peoples are put into the position of being the Canaanites, right? Indigenous inhabitants. And that that ideology could be used to justify much of some of the injustice that had taken place. And I found myself struggling and going, man, God, I'm kind of a newer believer, and is this what I signed up for? Because if this is what's going on, like, I think I'd rather side with the Navajo, right? And, and so I, I, personally, I personally wrestled with this topic over the years, but I dove into the Old Testament, and as I was reading, there was a strong sense emerging that, dude, something different is going on here. This is something radically different. I don't know that I could have fully put my finger on and articulated it super clearly at the time. Uh, but I do think that uh, over the years, there's become this growing conviction that like, yeah, what's actually going on in the Old Testament, I would say, is uh, God confronting the mainstream version of holy war, right? That this is a radically different picture we find where it's not just kind of different, like it's kind of a few variations, a, a few lines drawn in different directions. It's like God is taking the mainstream picture of holy war, painted across the history of our world, and he's flipping it upside down on its head. And confronting it. Holy War is this oldest time, right? Inca and Aztec, Chinese and Mongols, Greeks and Romans, like uh, this belief that like, dude, the gods are in our corner of the fight ring telling us to conquer our neighbors and take their stuff. And we, and we use the gods to justify the wars we want to wage. Uh, we see throughout, you know, I think when we tend to think of Holy War, we think of the strong, 
using God or the gods to justify their conquest of the weak. I want to suggest this morning that it actually works in the opposite direction. In the Old Testament, it's not the strong using God to justify their conquest. It's God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's raged for far too long. So let's dive in. All right, so I think when most of us think of holy war, uh, the picture that we get in our heads is probably a little something like this, right? <laughs> Dude, I loved Rambo growing up. I don't know. I, I loved watching the movies. And, but there's a sense that uh, he's strong, right? He's fighting for the, the rightness of his civilization. He's got kind of his weaponry, and he's coming in to, to save the day. And so we tend to think of holy warriors throughout history as the muscle-bound machine gun heroes, right? They're muscle-bound. they got strength on their side. They're picking fights that, like, yeah, we're fighting for God, and, and maybe he'll, whether or not he shows up, though, we still kind of got this in our back pocket. They've got machine guns, they've got advanced weaponry and, and the ability to, uh, to engage at that level. And, and they're heroes, they believe in the greatness of their cause, their civilization. I want to offer three paradigm shifts this morning and suggest that the Old Testament takes each of these three categories and flips them dramatically on their head. Uh, and so let's start by just kind of asking the basic question, who is Israel? This is a good place to start, right? And Israel is not who you'd expect. <laughs> they are a nation of slaves who have been getting their tails kicked on the outskirts of the empire for centuries. They're depicted as the last and the least and the weakest of the ancient world. And they're going up against Egypt and Canaan, the mightiest imperial powerhouses of the ancient world that dominated the region. They should get crushed. This is not who usually fights mainstream holy wars. And so let's jump in and take a look at each of these, uh, these categories. We're going to start with machine guns, right? Weaponry. What kind of weapons, machine guns does, does Israel have? They go in, they're radically outgunned and outmanned. So it's not like they left Egypt and there was like a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them out in the wilderness, right? Canaan They've got, like, dude, high-tech horses and chariots, which were sort of like tanks and jet fighters back in the day. And Israel's got, like, sticks and stones and whatever they've been able to muddle together in the wilderness the last 40 years. Israel is like a kindergartner going up against the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. As far as defenses, Canaan has heavily fortified military outposts like Jericho. They've got high walls and defensive systems built in. Israel, in contrast, her defense system is this small wooden box, the Ark of the Covenant, right, that she's built in the desert. The significance is that God's presence with her is about the only thing she's got going for her as far as her defense. In terms of generals, Canaan has generals who practice strategy on the surrounding nations, establishing their dominance in the region. Israel, meanwhile, has been fending off snakes in the wilderness. If we look at armor, Canaan has high-tech metal, the best uh, armor of the day to repel any incoming advances and blows. Israel, on, on the contrary, has the same ratty clothes they've been walking around with for the last 40 years. Israel is storming Fort Knox with a water pistol, right? This is a radically different picture. Think of the warriors, right? Canaan is known as a land of giants. They come in and they're intimidated and scared of like, dude, these guys are huge. And they should be. They've been feasting off the land of milk and honey, right, for generations. And so they're massive. Uh, Israel, in contrast, is depicted as a, a comparatively like a nation of runts, right? Like while Canaan has sort of the wealth and affluence and all the confidence that that brings. Israel 
marches in like ants under elephants' feet, small and intimidated. So if we want to think about Israel's weapons, I would suggest that they look less like this and more like this, right? Israel is going in radically outgunned and outmanned, and it's here in this place that she learns to sing the song in the Psalms where she says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust the, the ancient world, the empires, they, some trust in uh, their militarization, in their mighty tanks, in their defensive systems, in their advanced weaponry. Our trust and confidence is that God fights for us. A weak and defenseless people, the last in the ancient world. This is antithetical to mainstream holy war. It's inversion. Israel is the dramatic, laughable underdog. Like, if we think of the NFL, right, this isn't necessarily like a lesser-ranked team going up against a higher-ranked team. This is like the NFL Super Bowl champions going up against your peewee football team at the local high school, right? They're in a different league altogether and should get crushed. Their only hope from getting routed is that God is the one fighting for them. All right, well, let's move on. So machine guns. Now let's move on to muscle-bound. Right? We tend to think of holy warriors as strong. They've got strength. They've been training and working out and getting ready for the fight, and they've been anticipating this day, and they're ready to step into the ring. Uh, but I want to suggest to you that Israel looks a bit more like this. Right? <laughs> when we think about like strength and strategy and, and what they've got going for them, Israel's strategies are ridiculous continually ridiculous. So if we start with Jericho, this is kind of the opening battle where Israel's going into. It's the, the first kind of entrance into promised land. And Jericho is like this fortified military outpost. It's defensive systems. It's guarding the roads that lead up to where the people are and where, where the place is, right? So Jericho, this fortified military outpost. And so Israel kind of comes out through the wilderness and they're facing it and going, all right, God, what's the, what's the plan of attack? What's the battle strategy? How are we going to take this? And God goes, all right, here's the plan. We're going to march around the walls for seven days and blow trumpets, right? That is a really dumb battle strategy, okay? Like, if you can imagine, like, soldiers in World War II, like, storming the beaches of Normandy with rock guitars and drums, right? <laughs> Ridiculous. Or the Mongols, like, the Mongols, like, uh, riding, charging up to the, the Great Wall of China with trumpets, right? Or if, you know, in the U.S., if we had, like, Canadians and Mexicans, like people in Canada and Mexico marching along the borders with, uh, like, a marching band as a declaration or act of war, we would laugh. We would consider it humorous. So what's the point? You know, I'd say with, with Jericho, uh, the point is that they are coming and entering in a posture of worship, and they're expecting God to be the one who does the fighting on their behalf. This is radically different. And I, I would say the strategy is intentional. It's designed to be ridiculous. It's designed to see that God is the one who's fighting for them. If we go to, uh, this isn't just Jericho. That's kind of the first, but you just start tracing them and look for it. You see all the strategies are, are fairly ridiculous. You go to Gideon, right, and, and Judges. Well, now they're kind of in the land, but they're being oppressed by these different you know, powers in Canaan. And so uh, the Midianites are one, and they rally all their forces, and their goal is they're going to take out Israel. And it says that they were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The Midianites are. And so Gideon, God, God raises up Gideon to kind of defend the people. And Gideon is depicted as the least in his family. And his family Family is like the last tribe in Israel. They're, they're depicted as like the weakest tribe in, 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 in their tribe, the weakest in their tribe, and their tribe is the last in Israel. 
So once again, God goes to the last, the least, and the weakest and pulls them out to show his strength as he rises up to defend his people. Right? And as Gideon kind of mobilizes what he can, he, he's able to rally 32,000 troops. And so he's got 32,000 troops and going, okay, God, what's the plan? What's the, what's the battle strategy? How are we going to uh, deal with these numerous sand on the seashore armies? Right? And he waits for it. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send 99% of the troops back home. It's a story where they drink the water from, if they drink lapping it up, uh, they, they stay, right? And so uh, 99% of the troops are sent back home, and he's left with 300, right? That is a ridiculous battle strategy. <laughs> if you can imagine Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War saying, you know, all right, let's send 99% of the Union soldiers, let's just send them back up north just to prove a point, right? Or William Wallace, like Braveheart, right? Like storming up uh, with the, the Scottish armies and all and, and just going, hey, you guys, why, why don't you just go take the day off and go home? I'm going to take on the English by myself. Right? That's kind of the picture here. That, and God actually tells Gideon, there's a reason I'm doing this. He says, the reason is so that Israel may not boast my own strength has saved me. Right? Jericho, Gideon, throughout invasion, the battle strategies are designed to be ridiculous to show that God is the one doing the fighting. Otherwise, it's a death wish. It's not a battle strategy. It's a death wish unless God is the one doing the heavy lifting. There's this uh, verse that has become very popular over the years, right? Be still and know that I am God. Um, I love this verse, but usually when you see it, it's kind of like, you know, like a Hallmark card or there's a picture of like a beautiful, uh, peaceful meadow and uh, the, the greenery and the flowers are blooming and the, everything's lush and growing and there's kind of a quiet bench and you go and you sit there to reflect and, and, and be still and know that I'm God. There's kind of this sense of like the world is crazy and busy and distracting, so step away and quiet yourself and sit in silence and rest. And those are all good things. But it might surprise you, you know, in original context, be still and know that I am God was a holy war verse, actually. A little bit of a different context for it. It comes from uh, the battle at the Red Sea, where Israel is coming out from Egypt, and Egypt, Pharaoh and his chariots and armies are chasing down their hot on her heels, and she's about to get crushed by the political forces of Egypt's empire and Pharaoh's armies on the one side. And then on the other side in front of her are kind of the raging, roaring, you know, the waters and everything. You're like, dude, we can't pass. We've got sort of these natural forces of chaos on one side and these political forces of chaos on the other. Going, dude, God, how are we going to survive? How are we not going to get annihilated here? And Moses steps up and he says, here's the battle strategy. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Hebrew scholars say this gets picked up in Israel's history and becomes this Hebrew phrase, be still and know that I am God. Yes, everything seems overwhelming and like you're about to get crushed, but cry out to him, look to him, depend on him, and watch him fight for you. When we hear, be still and know that I am God, I think the picture here, it's Israel's battle cry. And the picture here is not so much a monastery kind of detached from the world, right? A, a monk in a monastery detached from the world. Like that's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, that's fine. But the picture we should have in our heads is something more like a, a kid with disabilities getting beat up on the playground by 15 bullies who are bigger and older and stronger. And suddenly his father steps onto the field 
pushes him aside and says, sit back, son, and watch me take care of these guys for you. Like, that's the picture. It's God arising on behalf of his defenseless people. Old Testament scholar Ben Ollenberger uh, puts it this way. He says, Every other nation in antiquity claimed that their gods participated in war and were responsible for giving their warriors victory. But only Israel came to understand this claim to mean that it was unnecessary to fight. When Israel does step in, when they are called to enter the battle, they're just finishing off a job that God has brought to 99% of completion. Right? But in the bigger picture, her only hope is that God is the one fighting for her. Israel is not taking on the empire for God. God is taking on the empire for Israel. Right? And this is important because I think this confronts terrorism today, right? Because we could say, all right, yeah, well, throughout history, often the strong have used the gods to justify, you know, conquest of the weak. But don't terrorists think that they're the weak fighting on behalf of God against the strong? Like, could this be used to sort of justify terrorism, but we see a radically different picture here. This, you know, a terrorist motto is, we will fight for God. Israel's motto is, God will fight for us, This is not uh, a group with billions of dollars in international oil money kind of hiding in the shadows and taking pot shots at civilians from the rocks, right? Like, this is a visibly vulnerable, identifiable people group out in the open, ready to get crushed unless God arises their defense. This is a different picture. Once again, this is not, we will fight for God. This is, God will fight for us. And if he doesn't, we don't stand a chance. All right, let's move to the third. So we've looked at, um, they don't have machine guns, they're not muscle bound, but are they? Uh, Skip that, sorry. (laughs) Are they heroes? (laughs) Heroes, generally speaking in history, there's a sense that like, dude, we're justified in conquering you because of how great we are, like how great our civilization is. Throughout history, uh, holy warriors have used the greatness of their civilization to justify their conquest. So you think about Rome, the Roman Empire, they believed in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They believed their wars were were justified because as they conquered and assimilated nations, yeah, it was going to be hard for a minute, but they were bringing them into the blessing and greatness of their civilization, the peace of Rome, the great and mighty Roman Empire, right? If we think about in kind of the, the colonial era of Western history, there is a sense of, dude, it, we're justified in entering your land and establishing our dominance and pulling out your resources because of how great the civilization is that we're bringing. Uh, the phrase came up in this area, era of uh, kind of the white man's burden, right? This, this sense of like, dude, we're, we're not only, we're actually called, you know, we, there's this duty to go out and spread the greatness of the civilization to the peoples of the, of the world, even if that means extracting their resources and establishing our our dominance in the era, that people have used the greatness of their civilization to justify invasion and expansion and uh, kind of conquering and assimilating other nations. Today, it might look less military at times and more economic invasion, right? Like we're justified in kind of taking over and establishing our dominance because we got, dude, we got Coca-Cola and computers and compact cars. Like the greatness of our civilization uh, justifies us doing this. There's a sense of our heroism, Israel's history turns this on its head. Uh, We're told in Deuteronomy 9, a central holy war uh, passage, God says, know for certain as you go on, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. For you are a stiff-necked people. 
Not a great compliment. Right? God's going, hey, this, no, for certain, you're not the heroes, right? This is not because of your greatness or how wonderful you are. Um, you're actually not all, not all that great, right? Which, which is ironic because, you know, tenor, generally in history, we say the victors write the history books. And, and what we mean by that is the victors, those who win the battle, get to tell the story of how everything went down. And when they do, the victors tend to depict themselves in their history books as strong, heroic, courageous, and noble. But you read through the Old Testament and pay attention and you'll see, like Israel depicts herself in the opposite as weak, fearful, idolatrous, unbelieving, dishonest, disobedient. Israel depicts herself as the anti-hero of the story. It's almost as if she hired a reporter to track, you know, walk with her through, through, the, through the whole ordeal and track down all of her biggest flaws and failures and mistakes and blast them all over the pages of her history books. The victory occurs in spite of herself, not because of herself. And Israel had a numbers problem. In the ancient world, having a lot of people being a large and numerous nation was a sign of power and strength, right? It was a sign of how many people you had conquered and assimilated and your own kind of greatness and all. Uh, But Israel is depicted as the last and the least uh, of the people. As we see here in Deuteronomy 7, it's another central holy war passage. And Moses reminds them, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. She's not just a little bit behind, she's dead last, right? And why was this? Why was Israel so few in numbers? Well, uh, a couple things. You know, for start, you start as you can imagine, uh, when God calls Abraham, the, the beginning of Israel, God calls Abraham uh, and the nation begins, it's a couple generations after the other nations have been, been starting and exponentially exploding, right? And so it's like the other nations have been running a few laps on the population racetrack before Israel even gets to the starting line. And with Moses in Egypt, there had been the attempted genocide when Pharaoh tries to uh, kill all the babies under two years old, and this would have had a decimating effect on their population. Ezekiel depicts God finding Israel in Egypt as this picture where it's like God's walking out in this field, and he hears this baby crying, and he comes upon it, and he sees it's been abandoned in this field, and it's bloody, and it's exposed, and it's about to die, and God picks her up and takes her to himself as his own. But it's not a very flattering picture for Israel, right? Like you were this abandoned baby out in this field. I was saying, it's, it's not, you're not the hero in the story, Israel, right? <clears throat> and so what is going on here? I think the significance here, if we zoom out to kind of the 50,000 foot level, I would suggest to you that God is choosing the smallest, weakest, most helpless, vulnerable, powerless people in the ancient world to declare to the mightiest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest powerhouse empires that this is the kind of God he is. One who arises on behalf of the vulnerable, the exploited, the defenseless, and oppressed. That God is patient. He will be patient for a long time, patient for centuries. We're told in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, the reason your people are going to have to go into slavery is because I'm being patient with Canaan. I'm going to be patient 400 years while their injustice and their idolatry and their destruction grows. But when his patience runs out, his patience will not last forever. God is way more patient than we might be led to believe, but his patience will not last forever. Because God is good, God will ultimately arise to tear down our empires and establish his kingdom in their place. 
to dare down the oppressive and exploitative structures and systems that we've built. And in this story, we see he's actually handing it over. He's handing over his garden, handing over his promised land to this nation of homeless, wandering slaves. That sends a message. How you treat them is how you treat me. Because I'm a God who will arise ultimately on behalf of the exploited and oppressed. All right, well, this morning, I want to, in light of all this, I kind of want to teach you uh, how to fight a holy war, right? I I know that's really why you all came this morning. How how do I, how do I do this myself? (laughs) So I'm going to give you the 10 steps to fighting a holy war. Here they are, a true biblical holy war, all right? Number one, throw away your armor. Number two, uh, there we go, burn your tactical training books. Number three, Find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. (laughs) Number four, visit a rehab center to find military leaders with issues. (laughs) Number five, hire a reporter to meticulously track all your flaws and failures. Number six, boast to your enemies about how backwards your civilization is. (laughs) Number seven, find the biggest, baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Eight, pick a fight. Nine, walk into the middle of the battlefield. And ten, pray that God shows up. No one in their right mind is going to fight a war like this today, right? I think one of the concerns with Old Testament violence or passages like these is, man, if we believe in that, if you believe in that, then you're going to become more violent today. You're going to want to do, do, do things like that today. But no one in their right mind is going to want to do something like this today, right? When we really get a clear picture of what's going on, uh, we actually see, you know, I love uh, Miroslav Volf as a theologian, and he talks about how, dude, when we really kind of get a right understanding of why God and his goodness comes to deal with injustice and all those things in our world, uh, it should make us, this kind of stuff should make us less violent, not more, right? Because we have a, we don't need to vindicate ourselves. We don't need to take vengeance ourselves. We entrust vengeance is mine, says God. Like, we entrust vindication into God's hands. We can live our lives with sacrificial love. We can be vulnerable uh, in the world in the midst of these hostile powers, and we entrust ourselves to the God who will ultimately fight for us. I love all this, you know, I think is summed up in the famous story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath, it's just, it's more than just a cute children's story, right, about a runt taking down a giant. There's actually something more going on. For Israel, this was not only a holy war story, it was kind of the holy war story. We jump into David and Goliath, we see that it takes place at the Valley of Elah, right? And the Valley of Elah, this is the place where Israel's on one side and came on one side and the Philistines on the other. And on the other side is basically the last portion of land in the promised land to be taken, right? And so this is the end. It's the climax. It's the finale of what started back with Joshua. This is the completion of the kingdom taking shop in the promised land, right? And so uh, as this battle starts, we start to see David and Goliath as, you know, yes, themselves, but it's also like they draw into themselves this entire history, that Goliath looks a lot like Canaan, right? Like he's tall, strong, this giant. He's got the armor and the weapons. He has got the most advanced weaponry of the day, right? He's got the most advanced armor. He's like an impenetrable fortress. And David, in contrast, looks like Israel has looked throughout this thing, right? 
Like he can't, he can't even wear the armor. It's too heavy for him, right? And, and so he comes out, he's wearing his shepherd clothes and he can't even carry the sword. And so he's got his, his sling and stone. And the, the vision to the ancient world, they see this thing going on and it looks laughable, right? And Goliath's strategy, it makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, just walk up to your opponent and chop off his head, you know? Uh, David's strategy looks ridiculous. Like, yeah, throw pebbles at Mount Everest and hope it falls down, you know? And Goliath boasts about his gods, basically saying, hey, on behalf of my God, I'm going to fight for my gods and I'm going to crush you. And David, in response, says, no, God's going to fight for me and he's going to take you down. And like this whole history, dude, the runt and the giant and a sling and a stone and down goes Goliath. It's this picture of everything that's gone before this is not just a holy war story, it is the holy war story, David and Goliath. And we actually find that in Christ, that Jesus is the new David, right? That Jesus identifies with us in our weakness. Jesus places himself underneath the empires and powers of our world, like Rome and the leadership, the Jewish leadership of the day. He places himself under the power of our highest courts and our truest priests and allows himself vulnerably to be crushed. Like he trusts the Father his father, to arise ultimately in his defense on his behalf in the resurrection. Jesus walks out onto the battlefield at the cross, right? Like visibly vulnerable and exposed, trusting in the father at the cross and the tomb. Ultimately, he places himself vulnerably under the power of the grave and entrusts God, his father, to fight on his behalf as the son. And he does, raising him from the grave, victorious as the beginning of the new creation, reestablishing God's kingdom reign in the earth. God's kingdom reign on earth as it is in heaven, where God's reign is being established through Christ, taking over where sin's destruction has for too long reigned. And so I want to ask, say, what, do we, what do we sort of do with this, right? What is the, uh, is there any kind of conclusions we can draw? And uh, I, I'm going to point to a few things here. First off, you know, three things. First off, I would suggest that this story starts to look like hope for the world. This is the uh, dramatic like underdog story. I would suggest there's a reason why we want the underdogs to win. Like we see this massive theme in movies. So whether it's like the Mighty Ducks or pretty much every Adam Sandler movie ever made or, (laughs) you know, like we want... (laughs) We want the, I loved Aladdin as a kid, you know, and it's like, he's the underdog, and he, he gets drawn into this crazy story, the hobbits, right? They're like the rejects of Middle Earth, and they're brought into this amazing story. You look throughout kind of our fairy tales and, 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 and our stories and all, and we love to root for the underdog. And I suggest there's a reason that it's actually embedded in the structure of the universe, that this is the kind of God, the kind of creator that we have. And he is a God that, yeah, he's patient. He's patient with our world today. But there are a lot of underdogs getting crushed around the world today. I oversee our, our local and international ministries. We work with, uh, you know, foster care and homelessness and anti-trafficking and things like that in our city. And you see people getting crushed under the exploitative and oppressive power of others' greed and lust and pride work internationally, particularly in Cambodia and Vietnam, and you just see international systems and structures and processes, and you see people getting crushed underneath the weight of some of those, not only historically, uh, but even today around the world. And for me, these have actually become a source of hope. I opened with um, 
you know, kind of talking about the Navajo reservation and, and native peoples, and I come to see you, this actually starts to sound like hope for that story, right? That yes, God has been patient, but he hears the cries rising up from his devastated earth. He hears the blood that cries out from the ground, and ultimately he will come to vindicate and to redeem. And yes, there are still some difficult issues here. So, uh, you know, tomorrow night at the lecture, you know, some of you are going, yeah, but what about, the, there are some tough passages, things like uh, where Israel is given what I like to call some drastic marching orders, right? Like utterly destroy them, do not leave alive anything that breathes, like show no mercy. And, and that can sound like, like genocide, right? That can sound pretty rough. Uh, but I invite you to come out tomorrow night. We're going to be diving deeper into passages like those. And what I, what I want to show tomorrow night is that, you know, there's actually a lot more nuanced picture that's going on in the Old Testament. And when we see that, we'll start to see that Israel actually radically raised the bar on ancient warfare practice. That last week, you know, Dave uh, preached on how in the ancient Near East was brutal and how God kind of accommodates and steps into the realities of the time, but is pulling Israel forward out of kind of some of the, the muck and the gnarly practices and towards a, a better way and restraining some of the worst things. I will see tomorrow night that God does similarly. He raises the bar in ancient warfare practice. And I think we'll also see, perhaps surprisingly, that Israel even actually raises the bar on modern warfare practice, that Man, the history, even of the modern West, for I as a modern Westerner owning my history, that we've looked a lot more brutal than we like, might like to imagine in the 20th century. Um, our, our wars in the modern world have been way more brutal than anything Israel could have ever dreamed of. And so, yes, there's still some questions, but I invite you tomorrow to kind of come. We can grapple through some of that. But big picture here, land kind of going, dude, I believe this story is hope for the world. That God is a God who hears the cries and will ultimately arise on behalf of the underdog. So it's hope for the world. Second kind of landing pad here is, is I think for us to ask, hey, where are we in the story? Right? Because the dangerous tendency is to kind of go, well, we're the heroes, right? We're, we're Israel. We saw that in, in early American history uh, where you know, Europeans assumed, hey, we're, we're Israel. We're the good guys. But I suggest that actually the modern West, we, we can look a lot more like Canaan at times. You look at our history, I mentioned how the 800 treaties with native peoples, everyone broken. Think about slavery and the legacy there, over 10 million enslaved to build what we have today. And the question arises, does God hear their cries? Does he hear their blood that cries out from the ground? And I believe the answer is yes, and it's in this Old Testament history that we find the hope that God is a God who sees and hears, that he is patient. And I think today we could maybe think, well, yeah, that was back then, but we're a lot better today, like we're great, right? But there's a lot of gnarly stuff that happens today in kind of the international systems and structures and things that we've built. Uh, so we're sort of in the tech hub here, right? Uh, and I was reading, and we can think of technology and social media. Well, well that's really polite society. It's good stuff. There's nothing, nothing bad there. But I was reading an interesting article in Wired this week, and it was talking about how, uh, you know, the amount of people that have to be employed to kind of protect what we see on social media. Now, this by and large gets exported uh, to impoverished countries where people spend their days like sifting through just brutal images of violent pornography, of kids being abused and exploited, of bestiality, of uh, beheadings. And, and they're in charge of kind of deleting and removing this stuff so that we don't have to see and deal with it. And psychologists are saying, man, just the dramatic impact. Most people can't make it more than a few months 
in these jobs because it just starts to wear on you, right? And they're saying, you know, that, man, when you see this stuff like that, you're forever impacted. That we have a, this is just one little lens on a system we have today where, uh, so like that, so the, the, the article includes saying, so companies like Facebook and Twitter rely on an army of workers employed to soak up the worst of humanity in order to protect the rest of us. And there are legions of them, a vast divisible pool of human labor, well over 100,000, that is about twice the total headcount of Google and nearly four times of that of Facebook. It's huge. Uh, there's been a growing awareness how tantalum this, this, this uh, uh, product in our, many of our iPhones and just a lot of computer technology uh, has often uh, been used coming out of Congo, one of the most brutal war zones in the world where since 1998, five million people have been killed. Rape has been used as a weapon of war. Right? And organizations, companies are, are trying to figure out how they can best source their stuff to not get it from that, but there's still this overriding reality where experts are going, you can't really trace it, right? Like at some level, uh, there's this reality that some of these violent conflicts have been fueled by the wealth and stuff we have today. I've spent time living in Rwanda and Cambodia, home to two of the worst genocides in the 20th century. And one of the things that just grieved me was finding the role that even our Western history has played in some of those. Like in Rwanda, that Belgium and colonialism and kind of the Western presence there had in dividing Hutus and Tutsis in a way that ultimately led to the genocide. Or in Cambodia, the way that one of the most intense bombing campaigns in the 20th century just devastated Cambodia, destabilizing the country and setting the path for the Khmer Rouge to rise up and take power. My point is not necessarily that people have these bad intentions or that social media or other stuff is bad. I have an iPhone, I'm a fan of social media, whatever. My point though is that we live in the midst of international structures and systems and we live kind of the height of them, right? That have often, uh, often have hard destructive impacts for people in the world. And I wanna declare that the Old Testament proclaims that God is a God of hope for them and for us that the unjust and exploitative things that we have often as humanity constructed do not, at the end of the day, have the final word over God's good creation. And if there's an analogy for Israel, it's not America, it's not uh, Europe, it's not whatever, it's, it's the church, right? Like, we're the people who are called to fight not with, uh, you know, not with the, the usual weapons of war, we're not to wage war with the weapons of the world, but we're to stand vulnerably in the midst of God's world, to work for justice on behalf of the oppressed, and to trust God to fight for us and vindicate us. So the final question I want to ask us this morning is just, dude, are we living for the empire or for the kingdom? Right? Like, are we living for the empire or the kingdom? Where is our hope ultimately set? It's been said that the gospel, when it shows up, it, it's able to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, Right? And so I'd ask you this morning, where are we comfortable? Where, I, I, I'm convicted of this, kind of preparing for this this week. Where have we grown too comfortable in kind of the ways of, of Babylon or the modern, uh, you know, just international structures? We live at the heights of a global economy, right? And where have we grown too uncomfortable rather than spending ourselves on behalf of the vulnerable, working on behalf of the oppressed? Where do we need to maybe give generously? Where do we need to lay down our lives to the vulnerable right here in San Francisco? How can we as the body of Christ live lives of sacrificial love that see God's presence identified with and for those who are being crushed? How can we come alongside and embody his kingdom as his people here on earth as it is in heaven with them? 
So for some, uh, we might need to repent uh, of ways that we've abused our strength, that we become too, I'm a father, and man, as a father, there's probably no more place than your family at home with my kids. I got three young kids, and just recognizing the weight of, I have authority and power at home, and how I treat my children matters that God cares. They are the kind of vulnerable ones in my midst. And, and it's too easy. We see in our culture today abandonment and abuse and these other things. And so I think God is calling us this morning. Where do we need to repent of ways we've abused or abandoned or, or not use the authority that we have to lay down our lives for the vulnerable ones in our midst? And the other side of this is going, where are you afflicted? Because God's gospel is a comf- comfort for those who are afflicted. Where do you need this morning the God who fights for you? What circumstances are you in the midst of? Maybe it's that relationship or your marriage is struggling. Maybe it's those, your financial situation, the areas where just life feels so overwhelming or you feel like you've been crushed or you're about to be crushed. I think God invites us this morning to come to him and to cry out to him and to look to him in trust, to find in him the one who fights for us. And because of that, we can live vulnerably and sacrificially in his world as his people. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Holy Father, God, I thank you that we are not without hope. I thank you that you are strong, God, and that your strength is good and right and true, Lord, and that we need your strength, that your strength is hope for our world. God, I thank you that you are patient, and this patience, God, your patience is good news for our world. It allows us to, to run today and, and thrive. And yet, your patience, God, may we live with the awareness that it will not last forever. And that this, too, is good news for our world, God. That those who have been trampled and, and crushed underneath, God, uh, where God, that blood cries out from the ground, Father, we know that you see and you hear and you are good and you are coming to set things right and restore your world. So we pray this morning, Father, that we as your people could be an embodiment of your kingdom come, Lord, and your will done right here in San Francisco as it is in heaven. God. If there are areas where we have grown too comfortable, God, may we, in, just in the midst of, of things in our world as they are, God, will we sacrificially and generously lay down our lives for the vulnerable in our midst in our city and in our world, God. And if there's areas, God, I pray for all those who feel overwhelmed by life, Lord, and surrounded. Uh, maybe they've been crushed in spirit, God, or intimidated by the, by the circumstances that we face. Father, we look to you and we ask, God, would you fight on our behalf? Would you empower us, God, in the power of your spirit to live dependent on you, to make ourselves vulnerable in your world because we trust that you are good? And God, that ultimately, even if it's on the other side of the grave, you are coming with victory to redeem and to establish your goodness in the world forever. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.